Meanwhile... Yes, because I don't have a headset plugged in, do I? Okay. That could very well be the problem. Well, you can shout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as you can hear us uh, enough to uh, uh, interact, I think we'll be okay. Okay, well, I can try. Certainly, as, as long as nobody starts barking or something at this end, I can hear you. Uh, well, we might get my cat meowing in the background, so maybe we'll get a whole animal choir go. Yeah, well, I've got my dog sitting here, so he can take part too. Another exciting edition of Mid Valley Mutations, and uh, this one is a very special uh, treat here. Uh, not only uh, is it a little bit of a personal story and one that I'm I'm quite proud of in terms of uh, the, the final product, uh, but it is a group effort here because uh, I would not have been able to do this without the assistance of my uh, good friend Heather, who uh, is not only in the chat but joins me on this uh, upcoming conversation here. And so I want to thank her up front. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you not only make these uh, uh, explorations and conversations with uh, these people that much more enjoyable, uh, but you're also friends with Martin Newell. So uh, uh, that that's, uh, that's pretty excellent. No, uh, the thing that's excellent is that you are an excellent person on your own. And you also know Martin Newell. But that's neither here nor there, because tonight we are uh, speaking with uh, the good sir uh, Steve Roberts, um, who uh, I'm quite fond of for one particular reason. But as we have come to discover when we uh, get a chance to speak with him, he has had a rather interesting life. And I, 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 uh, I do hope that I'm not um, keeping too much back, because I do have a nice spiel here that I'm going to launch into in a moment to kind of give a little more setup, but I just wanted to say hello to everybody before we really get that rolling. Window is open tonight, so if you hear any vehicles passing by, that is why. It's a nice day. It's very pleasant, and it's nice to have a little bit of a breeze. 
Let's say hello to Imaginos, Chris O. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for helping out with the last hour. Uh, we were listening to some excellent San Francisco air checks selected by Mark Time, and Chris was helping out there. Thank you. Polly from Clifton. I, I do enjoy a good Polly visit to the chat room. And then uh, it looks like we also have uh, Mr. X. Thank you for mutually mutating as well. Now, uh, before you l- turn the dial, because you're, you're said, oh, this is going to be more Max Headroom stuff, and that's not really my cup of tea. This first hour is not Max Headroom stuff. In fact, it has a lot to do with 70s BBC. So hopefully that's uh, piquing your interest a little bit. Uh, I shouldn't say very much more. Uh, Mr. Roberts and I actually collaborated on all of the tunes that you're going to hear tonight. So uh, uh, this Talking Heads song was my pick that he approved. Most everything else that you're going to hear musically throughout the entire evening was selected by Steve Roberts. We, we traded a bunch of email, and I was like, hey, uh, wh- what kind of tunes do you dig? And uh, <laughs> not usually the question he gets asked, because he's usually getting asked about cyberpunk and... Red Wall and things like that, but uh, it was nice to, to chat about things that I don't think he usually gets to chat about. So uh, we, we had some fun uh, picking out tunes, and, and I hope you enjoy this presentation. Oh, cat in the chat, hello! You're in for a treat. Now, <clears throat> let me uh, do a little setup here and explain uh, who this person is and uh, why I find them interesting. It's uh, Mid Valley Mutations here on Sheena's Jungle Room, one of my favorite places to hang out on a Tuesday night. Now, where were we? This week, we are featuring elements from three different interviews we conducted with TV Maverick and writer Steve Roberts. Often his creative credits are reduced to simply the man who wrote Max Headroom, and certainly that isn't untrue. But like all of us, Steve's story is so much more than just that simple reduction. Steve's career in television stretches back to the late 60s, and he's worked on nearly every side of the camera, including directing, writing, Uh, he's even been filmed now and then. And not just in the science fiction realm either. He helped shape the Redwall TV show in Canada uh, back in the early 2000s, wrote and directed a film with Vivian Stanchel of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, and he even produced a television special for none other than The Beatles. In addition to buying and selling incredible cars in his spare time. In many ways, Steve embodies the working class characters that populate many of his stories. A simple car salesman, concerned about the direction our world is headed, with dreams of telling stories he imagines that are better than all the nonsense you see on television these days. And in the late 60s, it did seem as if the long hairs were ascending, making bold and incredible statements about the world that the previous generation had destroyed and left for them to clean up. This is probably when a little bit of British television history is in order, because in 1964, BBC Two was launched, and with it, a fairly fantastic broadcasting philosophy. BBC One had been around since 1936, 
and carried fairly mainstream UK programming that would appeal to a fairly broad audience. ITV had been introduced in 1955 to help break the monopoly on broadcasting that the BBC held and to create a network of small companies that provided regional programming for certain parts of the United Kingdom. At the same time, there was a big push to allow for more commercial radio in the UK, and both the BBC and ITV were trying to pursue a second TV license in order to add color broadcasts to their repertoires. To discuss various broadcasting concerns, the Pilkington Committee was formed in 1960 to discuss what the future of broadcasting might hold. The committee saw commercial radio as something to avoid and were concerned that ITV were broadcasting so much American programming to help fill their airtime. It was ultimately decided in the Pilkington Report, after nearly two years of consideration and conversation, that the BBC should be awarded a second TV license and should extend their work on radio to create more local stations in an effort to prevent commercial radio from getting more traction. Ironically, this had the opposite effect on radio at the time. It inspired the creation of a radio lobby group to fight for more commercial radio. And by 1964, Radio Caroline and other ship-based illegal broadcasters set up outside the enforcement of the UK government and was still heard by teenagers all over the country anyway. BBC Two began to be promoted for its color broadcasts and by April of 1964, began to feature regular programming, slowly building up a roster of shows and airing trade test transmissions during the day to illustrate the color attributes of this new format. Their mission statement was quite different from that of other channels at the time, hoping to offer more niche programs, art films, documentaries, comedies, and anything else that didn't really fit into the more mainstream, prim and proper BBC One. Of course, this began to attract an unusual assortment of broadcasting characters, people who didn't quite fit into the rest of the entertainment world, and yet were perfect for this left-of-center channel that was slowly materializing in the late 60s. Since many of these people were all making a wide range of shows, and since the channel didn't want their programming schedule to seem completely impenetrable, for the viewer who was just looking for some continuity in their lives, the idea to brand their evening entertainment with one name that could then carry any number of shows within it made a whole lot of sense. At a time when everything, not just science fiction, was written on typewriters, when activists were gaining access to broadcast tools they hadn't had before, and when those who were willing to take chances could really make a name for themselves if they just made a little effort, a man by the name of Steve Roberts managed to talk his way into working for BBC Two and found himself on the new evening program, now affectionately referred to as Late Night Lineup. So we call upon the offer to explain In uh, the late 60s, early 70s, I was working, uh, producing directing for the BBC, a show called Late Night Lineup, 
late night lineup was BBC Two show started somewhere between 10, 13, 11, and anything could turn up on it. You literally uh, would suddenly find the Prime Minister, then Harold Wilson, sitting there chatting happily away, or you'd find, you know, some uh, maven of the movie industry had turned up, or there'd be a movie that we'd made or something. It was a kind of mini BBC in itself. Mm. And so we got a lot of attention from a lot of people who loved the show because it was so unpredictable and wild, just never knew what was going to be there. Uh, but what we didn't know was we had quite a lot of uh, fans uh, who were the kind of people you'd expect to have on the show, not looking at it. Two of these turned out to be Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Mm. You may recall were in an outfit called The Beatles. I think I've heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> Rings a bell. Doesn't it? <laughs> Maxwell Silverhammer. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silverhammer came down upon a hill. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silverhammer made sure that she was dead. The upshot of this was that they were about to release their album Abbey Road. And they called us and said, uh, you know, we would like to do something very unusual, that this record releases tomorrow, uh, well, sorry, whatever the day was, how would you like to release it on television the night before? Hmm? This was about four days distant. Yeah. And we said, well, how do we do that? And they said, well, you know, any way you like, really. We just love what you do. <laughs> That's pretty good. If you're calling John, then where's Ringo? We said, right, we'll do it. So we put a team together and in three days created a 50-minute live program with all sorts of inserts and bits and cuts and the rest of it. Well, this was Abbey Road. It was released. And, of course, there was the usual splendid fuss about it. And it was, it was <laughs> all very nice. Pip, pip. Cheerio. At that time, there was working in the same team as I, a friend of mine called Ian Keel. An actor, writer, director, and producer for BBC Two, Ian Keel was born in 1937 and started acting in the late 50s, but found that, while he was perfectly capable of carrying an episode or even a short series, he was much more suited for work behind the camera. At Late Night Lineup, he settled into directing and producing, going on to work on One Man's Week, The End of the Pier Show, and Rutland Weekend Television. He wrote a handful of TV movies in the late 70s and early 80s, and has remained active with the odd project here and there ever since. But we shouldn't let his friendship with Steve diminish what we think of the incredible Mr. Keel, and assume that he is a upstanding and wonderful gentleman. Ian and I worked different teams um, and, you know, you'd have three weeks on and a week off or whatever it was to do your shows. Um, and so we did Abbey Road. Ian went and did what he was doing. I then left and went independent to do a movie in London. We will return to the story of the film that Steve Roberts made in London with Vivian Stanchel and with music by Neil Innes. But... We must continue the thread of Late Night Lineup. Late Night Lineup wasn't just a show. It was, in essence, a sort of uh, unofficial production outfit because oh. we did documentaries, we did films, we Got did it. drama. Up Sunday with Willie Rushton and all sorts of the usual gang. One of the many personalities connected with Late Night Lineup, Willie Rushton was born in 1937 and began work as a cartoonist and satirist in the early 60s leading to him contributing a number of drawings to humor magazines and then publishing his own, under the name Private Eye, 
1961. This led to him getting work on That Was the Week That Was, and later, Up Sunday, the Sunday edition of Late Night Lineup. Willie Rushton went on to have a very long career in radio and television, working with just about anyone and everyone in English entertainment at one point or another. Always keeping busy, he illustrated a series of kids' books, as well as a number of other novels and books of writing, until he passed away in 1996. Some of the descriptions online made it sound like it was kind of um, controlled chaos at times. <laughs> well, that was our speciality. <laughs> this calls for a very special blend of psychology and extreme violence. So you also did a little bit of Rutland Weekend TV. Absolutely, uh, yeah, with Eric Idle, yeah. None other than Ron Nasty's writing partner, Dirk McQuickly himself? Ouch, you're breaking my heart. Ouch, I'm falling apart. Ouch, 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 ouch. I mean, it makes sense because it seems like the, all that same crew is all doing TV together. <laughs> well, Rutland Weekend came out of the late night lineup as well. Oh! Originated with the late night lineup gang, which yeah. were, I don't know, 50 of us or something, I suppose. And we had this extraordinary uh, limit, which was do whatever's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've said before, you couldn't do it now because the control, you know, at, at the um, pocketbook end is so tight. I'm looking for pound notes, loose change, bad checks, anything. Give me some money. So late night lineup became, became lineup Sunday. It became Rutland Weekend Television. Uh, it became, my God, it became a cooking program at one point. The Chicken Sisters, Miss Broiler, Miss Fryer, Miss Roaster, Miss Caponette, Miss Stewart, and Old Madam Hen. I mean, they had all these little spin-offs, and of course, famously, the Old Grey Whistle Test. This was the biggest music show on television. I mean, for playing stuff, uh, Mike, Mike. Mike Appleton produced that. Born in 1937, Michael Appleton was a producer and broadcasting professional who started at the BBC in 1958, after a short period in the military. Beginning in radio, he quickly moved to television, working on Late Night Lineup and the spin-off shows Color Me Pop and Disco 2, all under the watchful eye of Rowan Ayers. In 1971, the old Great Whistle Test was launched produced by Appleton, which included live and pre-recorded performances by up-and-coming rock musicians. Whistle Test ran for years on the BBC, finally closing up shop in 1987. Outside of that famous program, Appleton also produced a number of live concerts for Big Name Acts, and also worked on the Live Aid performance in 1985. He claimed to have the largest collection of phonographs and gramophones in all of Europe. He passed in 2020 at the age of 83. And all this was like lineup. It all came from like, it was like having your own BBC. And they were very pissed off about it, I might tell you. Right in the middle of a global rating sweep. Can you imagine worse timing, Murray? No, sir. It was spectacularly bad timing. Uh, So, yeah, late night lineup produced a whole swath of of stuff. And of course, we also used to go out and, and do. Uh, what you would call documentaries, but we always did documentaries without commentary, stuff like that. You know, the material had to speak for itself. And so we'd go off and do 40, 50 minute long shows.
Mid-Valley. The Steve Roberts Interview. Mutations. With musical selections made by Mr. Roberts himself. So, you have a team of enthusiastic, young, rock and roll powered TV producers who are all on the cutting edge of film, culture, and what's happening in the early 70s in the United Kingdom. It was only a matter of time before their political leanings began to seep into the programs they were making. I don't know if you ever remember uh, Silent Spring. It was at the, at the book that was at the beginning of the environmental movement, 1970s, something like that. Oh, yes. Um, anyway, the lady who wrote it, it was all about pesticides. Written by Rachel Carson in 1962, Silent Spring covers the research she collected at the end of the 50s regarding how pesticides were negatively impacting the environment, a direct result of human interference. In 1962, Big business interests like DuPont had worked carefully to prevent any kind of environmental discourse from entering into the mainstream at all. And the publication of this book began the conversation, which might not have ever happened otherwise. Rachel, who was unfortunately diagnosed with breast cancer, was incredibly weakened by the treatment and got very sick in January of 1964. Tragically, she only lived a few months longer and never really got to see the impact her book would have on the future of environmentalists and activists throughout the world. We had got hold of this idea and had I'd read a book called The Population Explosion by Paul Ehrlich. This controversial book, The Population Bomb, followed by a sequel, The Population Explosion, was originally published in 1968 and has been revised, updated, and reissued a number of times and is still in print to this day. While it seems that your particular political inclination will dictate how you might feel about Ehrlich's conclusion and his alarmist tone in spite of the inaccuracy of his initial predictions has caused many to dispute his claims completely, the concerns of population growth and shrinking resources are not just those of the far left and do need to be examined as we continue to see major environmental changes in our world that are absolutely a direct result of human demands on the diminishing resources available. Suffice it to say, in the early 70s, Paul was one of the few voices who were even talking about population growth at all, and the future accuracy of his many predictions had yet to cast specific doubts on him or his books at that time. Which was a very doom-laden assessment of the fact that we were breeding ourselves out of existence and that there would be huge famines, huge refugee crises, all of this stuff going on, lots of which we're coming to see. Climate problems, all of this was sort of thrown into it. And I decided, through a late-night lineup mechanism again, it'd be great to do a series of shows about each element which uh, of this very, very new movement which in those days were just called the environment movement. Oh, it's catchy. I like that. We did population, we did pollution, um, consumption, overconsumption, all that. So we did six programs, but we designed them as a newscast. So not boring old stuff about people saying, you know, this is going to happen, this is going to But we said, okay, this just happened, that this is the news. Well, in the UK at that time, the news was read by one person too. 
uh, and when commercial television got going, they used what was called the American method, where you'd have two uh, broadcasters and they'd right. shoot it one So we used that because it was snappier, and then put together a whole load of footage and uh, stuff, and created these sort of 40-minute newscasts about the issues of the environment as if they just happened. You're looking at now, sir. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened then? Past that. When? Just now. We're at now now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now. To our astonishment, we got this massive mailbag, as they called it, uh, um, uh, letters from viewers. You know, they had letters in those days. It was a piece of paper you wrote on mm -hmm. it. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to be clear because not everyone knows. So this was absolutely huge. It was like the War of the Worlds all over again because all the people saying, "My God, we didn't know this is happening. Is it real?" And all the rest of it. Right. <laughs> so we did. We did a. This was just one program, but we turned it into a series of six when it finished. And at the end of it, we did. I mean, uh, in 19 Jesus was it 71? It was exactly the time. Um, which we were utterly unaware of, um, that the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment, it was called uh, Only One Earth. Right. And they got all the nations of the world together in Stockholm. And Sveriga Radio, which was the television uh, outfit that operated in, um, it's the state outfit that operated in Sweden, contacted the BBC and said, this is too big for us. There's thousands of people coming. The story's massive. Would you come over and cover it? You know, bring, bring your big team and do it. And the BBC said, well, uh, environment, what's that? A fad of some sort, is it? Uh, a new fad that you Swedish people have got. And they didn't do it. Let someone else do it. Well, they, for some reason, which I know fully understood, got hold of a late night lineup, and our boss then, Rowan Ayres, who was a wonderful guy, and he literally called me in one day and said, do you want to go to Sweden and cover the World Conference on the Human Environment? And I went, yeah, great, um, sure, okay. <laughs> well, you can go this afternoon, take a team. We had Mike Dean. Michael Dean was a presenter in the BBC tradition who initially began working in South Africa as a sports reporter and then got a job at his native New Zealand broadcasting service before being scooped up by BBC Two, where he was a presenter largely on late night lineup. He made a number of documentaries, notably one on the life of Noel Coward. Later in his career, he moved to Australia and anchored the 1976 Summer Olympics coverage, but continued to do work for the BBC throughout the 80s. He spent many years in quiet retirement with his family and passed in 2015 at the age of 82. There were four of us, and we were expected to you know, do our best to send material back. And in, I think it was 10 days we were there, wow. four people, 10 days, we did, we did three 50-minute live programs and a 90-minute documentary. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, I, I, as, I, my, as I recall, we drank wine and a smorgasbord, and I don't think we sleep. <laughs> no, slept for two weeks. I mean, I just don't think we could have. Right. And that's when Andrew Gosling, my old film editor, I said to Andrew one day, Andrew, I can't shoot this stuff. You're going to have to shoot it. He said, I don't know how to shoot stuff. What do you do now? And off he went. And then he became a director, a producer, and had his own career at the BBC. Mostly working as a director after his big introduction on Late Night Lineup, Andrew Gosling was born on October 26, 1944. And after getting a taste for camera work, 
directed most of his career work between 1970 and 1986, during which he was the director for Rutland Weekend Television, The Innes Book of Records, a series simply known as Jane, and a number of TV movies. He directed The Snow Queen, which seems to connect nearly all of the late-night lineup team in one way or another. Probably his biggest contribution to television is his pioneering efforts in green screen technology on the series The End of the Pier Show, a technique that couldn't be used until the introduction of color television, and soon became copied and borrowed by a number of other people all over the world. The End of the Pier Show was described as a program for dirty-minded insomniacs, and mixed animation and sketch comedy, and included new music written for each episode. Gosling continued to work well into the 2000s and passed away in 2016. And, you know, it, it was that kind of crazy, we were in our 20s for crying out loud, you know, nothing right. nothing was impossible and we were immortal. What was Exactly. Going? We had <laughs> long beards and long hair and anybody in a suit was automatically abused, <laughs> which is why we were not popular at the BBC. Damn long hairs never learned, Chief. That was the sort of sort of carry on, you know, that, that happened. And and you got those opportunities because late night lineup was itself capable of generating those sort of opportunities. Mm. Um, nothing to do with the BBC. So it wasn't that we were creating another um, crazy type of program. We were already involved in what was a sort of fifth column BBC. Right. You know, 14s, we could do anything. You literally had an idea that said, Ryan, I'd like to do that. And he'd said, off you go. Wow. I guess uh, whatever, uh, as long as you're willing to shoot the camera, then do it. I don't think, I truly don't think I ever heard the word budget mentioned in all the years I was there. Wow. It was if it's worth doing, do it, and and we trust you. Uh, and as Ron said, I, you know, I, I don't hire dogs and go around barking. If these guys <laughs> screw it up, they screw it up. They get fired. If not, I leave them to it. And that's what he used to do. So a lot of weird stuff came out of late night lineup. It should be noted that Rowan Ayers was a legendary English television producer and executive, who made his name essentially as the head of late night lineup. As a young man, he was a lieutenant in the Royal Navy and served in the Battle of the Atlantic during World War II. In addition to these notable aspects of his life, he is also the father of Kevin Ayers of The Soft Machine. Film Night, uh, Barry Norman's Film Night, mm -hmm. that came out of late night lineup. While Barry Norman's career working for the BBC stretches back to 1960, and he's been involved in a number of projects over the years, nearly all of them relate to movies or film in some way or another. His primary show, Film, with a different name each year, depending on when it was airing, gave him a platform to talk about movies and led to a number of other opportunities here, there, and everywhere. He finally retired in 2001, but the show continued with new host Jonathan Ross and then others to follow him as well. Barry died in his sleep in 2017 at age 83 dreaming of being in a theater to see one last double feature. Tony Bilbo in those days was um, presenting it. Another one of the late night lineup crew, Tony Bilbo got his start in the late 50s. And while he did act and produce occasionally, he mostly wrote for a wide range of shows. In addition to presenting Film Night with guests like Hitchcock and John Ford, he wrote for the shows Please Sir, The Fen Street Gang, and EastEnders. So a lot of those great shows 
emerged from the late night lineup stable. We're all good at television. We are all good at television. We're good at television. We're so good at television. We're so good at television. You're so good. We are so good at television. Past is a foreign country and and are a foreign land more accurately. Things cannot possibly happen now that were very much run of the mill then. I mean, the idea, you know, when we did this um, thing for the uh, United Nations conference, we, because we were trying to do live shows simultaneously, were shooting footage, using it for live shows, and building the documentary, which, by the way, was a documentary without commentary. It had to speak for itself, because mm. uh, that was the technique we were sort of uh, promoting in those days, because most BBC stuff had this sonorous voice telling you what to think. And we thought, you know, the pictures and statements should do that. Well, in order to think about it, in order to make that documentary work, Andrew and I had to go back to Sweden because in those days you shot on 16 mil and all your film was this long and trims with sound. So you had a room two or three times the size of this study, you know, with just trims everywhere. Oh, and you yes. Had to get them off the hook and put them, cut and paste, you know, all that, stick it together and, and so on. Well, imagine the time it takes to find this. When you discover on arrival in Sweden that they've lost all the transcripts and none of the brown tape can be allied to any celluloid. Oh no. You have to start again for hour after hour going through trying to find stuff that might fit. I mean, it was a nightmare, but we did it. But the point is, it took time. Yeah. And it took longer than we'd been given two weeks to cut it. We needed six months, but we've been given two weeks, thank God for that. Well, the first week was about trying to find the material. Right. And only could this have happened with the Rowan Ayres at the helm. He called me and said, I've just been hauled over the coals at Programme Review, Attenborough World and the whole lot. Wondering what the hell you guys are doing out of here? You've got to come back. Yes, that Attenborough. So we can't come back, Rowan. We've got this stuff all over the walls and machines. We, got, we had five cutting machines running in five op- offices. Wow. And we had a tape of uh, status quo, I think it was, running outside the building in round a sound head, outside the building in round a sound head. We had this lot going out of sync, five versions, while cutting the thing, you know. Oh. There, there was the odd bottle of wine going around as well, I recall. But anyway, that was the kind of madness in which we were working to try and get this thing done. So we needed six months. We ended up with one week to do it. And he said, you've got to come home. They're giving me a rough time. We just said, we're not going home. We're going to finish it off. He said, you can't do that. <laughs> so we both resigned. Who's going to stop us? <laughs> and I said, I resign on the spot. That's it, right? And Andrew, who had two new babies and a mortgage, shouts on the other side of the room, that goes for me too. Andrew's resigned as well. Cheers, bang. <laughs> this is true. This is absolutely what happened. He and I stopped work instantly, went and bought a bottle of wine and went to the park. And we sat and drank the wine and said, you know something, we're here now until the money runs out, which won't be long, uh, but at least let's take one day off. First day off. Right. And the following morning, the phone rang at 6 o'clock a.m. We were in the cutting room because we lived in there. And it was Rowan Ayres. And I said, Rowan, don't, whatever you do, don't start. We're not, we're not coming back. He said, I'm trying to tell you, if you just shut up for a minute. I spoke to Attenborough and he said, screw it, let them do it. 
so you're on. Keep going. Thank you, Ron. Click. And we're, uh, now, you couldn't do that now. No. And everybody would be lined up and shot and fired and, you know, there'd be all this fuss going on. But it, people just dealt with things differently, I think. That's one way of putting it. They, had a, they actually had the Swedes who were very, very beautiful to us. They're lovely people. They had a notice handwritten and put on the door, do not feed the Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> More creature than man. But, you know, it was much like doing Max when we were here, you know. We'd work for a year without a day off, mm. basically. Saturdays, Sundays, Christmas, didn't, nothing mattered. It was, you have to do the show. And it's fun to work like that. It's it's a joy to work that hard and all the rest of it. And uh, now I think um, I, I think people are very capable of doing that now, but I don't think they're required to. There's so many rules and regulations about you going mad and needing a psychiatrist or something, which I'm sure we all do. But you know, some of it ended up on screen. <laughs> Have we ever not pulled through? It's like, it's like a lovely line, isn't it, in in Shakespeare in Love? You know. So what do we do? Nothing. Strangely enough, it all turns out well. I don't know. It's a mystery. Right. <laughs> yeah. The show must and go on. <laughs> yeah, the show must go on.
the Steve Roberts interview. You taste With musical selections made by Mr. Roberts himself. Uh, but th- that sort of stuff would happen on lineup a lot. There was, I, did I not tell you about the night we didn't have a program? I don't Everything think collapsed. No, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. This was somewhere in the seventies, <laughs> I suppose. And uh, we were, we had some. I think it was interview programs built around some theatre production or something, and that all folded up. Our backup show that we had created hadn't come out of the cutting room in time. Mm. Um, and as the day went on, because we'd come at 10 in the morning and 12 hours later had to be on air, you know, that sort of thing goes. Yeah, yeah. And this was often with lots of people and pictures and inserts. And I mean, there was a hell of a lot going on. And two o'clock came and four o'clock came and six o'clock, everything we touched turned to crap as we touched it. <laughs> I mean, just reach out and poo everywhere. And at six o'clock, with four hours to go to transmission, and we're supposed to put a one-hour show on, <laughs> the three of us were sitting looking at each other saying, we better get to the bar and start thinking because <laughs> we, we haven't got anything. Right. So we did. And uh, the names don't mean much to you, so I won't bother with them, but there was the presenter and the uh, uh, three of us on the team. And we sat in the bar and had a drink. Tom Corcoran is the name you should know, wonderful director. Tom Corcoran was a director and producer for the BBC who had a long and excellent career in film and television, going back to at least the 70s. He worked on a number of programs, in addition to Late Night Lineup, and directed Wogan, hundreds of episodes of The Old Grey Whistle Test, The Live Aid Concert in 1985, and also directed John Lennon's Slippin' and Slidin' video. Unfortunately, Tom passed away on October 23rd, 2014. And suddenly this idea emerged and we thought, can we get away with it? Oh, fuck it, let's try. So we went off our separate ways, some to get graphics, some to find a specific graphic. And what we did was we got uh, Thomas Landseer's Victorian painting, The Staggart Bay. Born in 1793, and lived to be almost 87 years old, Thomas Landseer was the oldest of 14 children, and in the same way he carried his father's deafness, he also followed in his footsteps as an engraver. Six of his siblings also became artists of one type or another, including Charles and Edwin, who were both well-known painters. Thomas produced a book of Monkeyana, or Men in Miniature, which included satirical etchings of monkeys in human clothing, and another book of more traditional animal paintings and etchings. Thomas eventually made engravings of Edwin's better-known work, including The Stag at Bay in 1865. The Stag at Bay is a dark and intimidating painting, with a storm brewing in the background, and a massive and powerful stag, exhausted, its back against a bay, in heated combat with two wolves who have cornered it. This particular painting brought the name Landseer from that of toiling artists to almost a household name, and his work is much more well-known in England than in other countries. And it's kitsch, but it's a very renowned uh, piece of painting. And we found it. Uh, We didn't look for it. We looked for just any famous painting, but there it was in the BBC library. So we got this, mounted it, stuck it on a camera stand, and Mike Dean, who was the presenter, sat down, and to the half million people, however many it was, that viewed Late Night Lineup every night live, he said, this 
evening we're going to do a major experiment in uh, contemporary notions of what art is. We're going to allow you to have in your living room wall a great work of art to enjoy and did this wonderful to camera piece that we cut to the Staggart Bay. There was no music, there was not even white noise, there was just total unforgivable for the BBC, utter silence. So if you turned it on, you'd think the sound had died, but here's the Staggart Bay. And we mm -hmm. ran it for 30 minutes. <laughs> without commentary, without explanation, nothing. We just so everybody in the land was turning it on and going, "What's this then?" And of course, they're all sitting there going, "There'll be a gag in a minute." I know. <laughs> Somebody will say something, or something will appear in the picture. Watch it. Look at hey, Ethel. Have a look at this. Is there something going on in the picture? Mm -hmm. And we just let it sit for thirty minutes, and then after thirty minutes, ran credits. <laughs> Credit roller. That was it. And Mel Oxley, who suddenly remembered Mel's name, he was the announcer that linked programmes in those days, had this very wonderful, rich, plummy voice. And he said, um, well, uh, as the programme finished, <laughs> and they went to weather or whatever, another first from Late Night Liner. Let's see how many of them are left in the morning. <laughs> and of course, it was all over the press and everything. People couldn't get over it. They thought half of all the Conservatives were also outraged at this waste of BBC funds. And the other half of the land was saying, fucking great, do it again. Right. Yeah. I, it was, it, one was able to do stuff then that I don't think you could dream of doing now. Yeah. Financially. Sorry, that seems very unlikely. Hi there, nice to be with you. Happy you could stick around. Like to introduce Legs Larry Smith, drums. And Sam Spoon's rhythm pole. And Vern Dudley Bohay Noel, bass guitar. And Neil Innes, piano. Come in, Rodney Slater on the saxophone. With Roger Ruskin Spear on tenor sax. Hi, Vivian Stanchel, trumpet. Big hello to Big John Wayne, xylophone. And Robert Morley, guitar. Billy Butlin, spoons. And looking very relaxed, Adolf Hitler on vibes. Nice. Princess Anne on sousaphone. Introducing Liberace, clarinet. With Ghana Ted Armstrong on vocals. Lord Snooty and his pals tap dancing. In the groove with Harold Wilson violin. And Franklin McCormack on harmonica. Over there, Eric Clapton, ukulele. Hi, Eric. On my left, Sir Kenneth Park, bass sax. Great honor, sir. Especially flown in for us, a Sessions Gorilla on Vox Humana. Nice to see Incredible Shrinking Man on Euphonium. Drop out with Peter Scott on Duck Call. Hearing from you later, Casanova on Horn. Yeah, digging General de Gaulle on accordion. Really wild, General. Thank you, sir. Roy Rogers on trigger. Tune in Wild Man of Borneo on bongos. 
Count Basie Orchestra on Triangle. Thank you. Great to hear the Rawlinsons on trombone. Back from his recent operation, Dan Drop, hot. And representing the flower people, Quasimodo on bells. Wonderful to hear Brainiac on banjo. We welcome Baldunican as himself. Very appealing, Max Jaffa. Mmm, that's nice, Max. What a team, Zebra Kid and Horace Bachelor on percussion. And a great favorite and a wonderful performer, all of us here, Jay Arthur Rank on Gong. Mid Valley. The Steve Roberts interview. Mutations. With musical selections made by Mr. Roberts himself. In trying to make connections between what Steve did on Late Night Lineup and what he did on Max, I inadvertently used the C word. You use that word career, and somebody said to me, literally two weeks ago, uh, a fellow I've known for uh, since he was a kid, actually, um, uh, and he said, uh, you know, I'm 32 years old, and I can't quite seem to how I'm going to get my career together. How do you get your career together? And I had to tell him, you know, I, I am absolutely the worst person in the world to ask because I've got no bloody idea at all. Um, <laughs> I've always seen a career, in my view, is you've come through this forest, you got to the other side, you look back and you go, oh, that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at yeah. the time, you've got no idea what you're doing, the people you meet. That's what you know. I, I started at the BBC while selling second-hand cars. That's mm-hmm. not a recommended career path. <laughs> If you if you want to get into the BBC television, go and try and sell some broke down old cars and make ten quid each. You can pay the rent. That's what you've got. And I don't have to go to film school. You know, no, no, go to motor trade school. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I love: is everybody has a different story about how they they get into their. Is there? There's like I, mean, I think especially as a young person, you have this. Um, idea in your head of like oh yeah a thing happens to you and then you start your career and it, and it isn't until i think you you do reach middle age where you're kind of like oh i'm already like 20 years into my career mm-hmm. <laughs> and it hasn't happened yet <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> and then you go, go shit it did it must have been that thing then because then that then that then that and that, i don't think that you know careers i think are for accountants and and mm, yeah, I, I know that show business has a career. There's probably I mean, a better word that we need to come up with for that. You know, like um, you're something that's not quite as um, uh, goofy as journey or 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 something like that. But um, how about the phrase "getting fucking lucky"? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Well. <laughs> that, that's the screaming truth. It's it's mm. you know, if you hadn't been there when that phone rang, right. if you'd actually gone for a pee instead of been sitting at the desk and you go yeah who what bingo you're off i honestly that's as close as it gets to to planning hello when i was working in, in i suppose the launch point of all this was that those early days at the bbc but when i was there we worked late night line up but we worked three weeks on and a full week off mm. well, i was always repairing old boats or sailing old boats or getting drunk in clubs with fishermen. I mean, it wasn't as if it was one or the other, it was both. Mm-hmm. And we were able to weave them together. And that was very important for me, um, you know, because I didn't ever get stuck getting on the train into London every day. 
I could right. do that for a period of time, and then boom, I could stop and go back to you know, walking the dog or putting a new plank in the boat, whatever. Um, so I don't, I've never seen it as a choice between the career or that, because in any case, I'd have chosen that every time rather than career. <laughs> There's something more appealing about being on the boat, isn't there? <laughs> there is. <laughs> the company's one thing. But hawk boing. A buck. Not a dog, but a boat. Going by. What a flip. What a fabulous swell. Oh, well. Now let's pursue a serious note. What's this? Both Steve Roberts and Vivian Stanchel proclaiming the various virtues of boats and the sea? Perhaps this is the perfect time to return to a previously dropped thread. Steve's trip to London to make a film with the Bonzos. Which came first? Uh, did you already know members of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, or did you meet them as part of working at the BBC? Uh, well, I met Vivian at the BBC hmm. because I was working on a program called Late Night Lineup, where I was producing and directing and stuff. And on one of the shows, uh, Vivian came in, and I don't know if you know much about Vivian Stanchel, but he, he was an bit. immensely brilliant and deeply difficult human being. But I always hit it off very well with him, and nobody else had worked with him. It was as simple as that. And he said, Christ, you know, you, you know, you know, Vivian, give it a go, because none of us are going to go anywhere near the studio. And I entered the studio and found Vivian in a coffin uh, with the lid down, fortunately, because he was naked. Wow. And he had been having an awful lot of fun, you know, destroying people's lives professionally uh, in his career. Anyway, we, we just we just got together again and uh, and uh, discovered we still enjoyed each other's company enormously. And it went from there. A producer in London who actually published uh, Vivian's work musically, Tony Stratton Smith, extraordinary man, he came to us and said, will you do a movie of We're All Into an End? And um, Vivian said, um, well, you know, only if Steve can do it, uh, which is kind of him. And so I said, well, we'll have a look. The long and convoluted history of Vivian Stanchel's Rawlinson End story is as hard to make sense of, or track down all the broadcasts of, as Max Hedrum. But here's the short version. Stanchel had honed a sort of spoken word piece, loosely titled Rawlinson's End, which he developed at live shows. Some of the material wound up on Let's Make Up and Be Friendly, the Bonzo's contractual obligation album. And yet even more of the material, in yet another form, was deployed in parts on the John Peel show when Stanchel was filling in as host. This led to the idea of adapting the piece as a radio serial. And ultimately, 13 of these were produced, each of varying lengths, some as short as nine minutes, others as long as 22. Having produced the radio show, Stanchel distilled the best bits down to a full LP, reproducing it and resequencing the story to better fit this new format. The success of the radio show and the album led to the suggestion that a film should be made, which would approach the material from yet another direction, co-written by Steve and Vivian, in an effort to make it work better for film. 
Shot in sepia tone, it was not as well received as the LP or the radio show had been, and some of the more absurd and whimsical elements of the story were tempered by the creative team just consuming more alcohol while they worked on the film. To revive interest in the material, a second LP, created without Stanchel and against his wishes, was released and seemed to conclude the Rawlinson's End saga. While rebroadcasts in highly edited forms appear periodically on the BBC, the radio show version remains unreleased officially, and the albums are currently out of print. The film had gained a bit of a cult following over the years, and finally, after decades, a DVD was released with bonus features and a commentary track. While no one version of the story seems to fully encompass the world that Stanchel envisioned when he would try to tell the story, each of them reflects a different aspect of this incredible piece of English pop culture. So Vivian and I then went off to try and write the screenplay of Rawl Internet, which was a problem in itself, because where do you go? And we went to Strat's house, which is a rather fine place in horse country, um, where Vivian started each morning consuming a bottle of vodka, and I kept up as best I could. And between us, we put together what became a screenplay after about a month of work, in which time Vivian had tried to poison uh, the caretaker's dogs because the yapping upset him, uh, had then involved us in a very, very nasty brawl in a, in a hotel where he suddenly stood up and shouted, why is this place full of midgets? Because they're all jockeys for the local um, uh, horse people and they just jumped up and threw us unceremoniously down the steps. That's all. You'll have to excuse Steve's dog. Jack Sparrow, remembering that bar fight is a bit of a trigger for him. And uh, into, into the car park. So it was, it was a fraught um, business writing that screenplay. Oh my goodness.
The Steve Roberts Interview Mutations With musical selections made by Mr. Roberts himself And A mighty hello A good one, even, as they might say. As we uh, celebrate here on Sheena's Jungle Room and uh, Mid-Valley Mutations with uh, the Steve Roberts interview. Special thanks to Heather, my uh, co-conspirator in uh, interviewing Steve. We got to speak with him three different times. Uh, A very generous uh, gentleman who who loves to tell stories and, and, and has a million of them. And uh, let's uh, say hello to uh, some of the folks in uh, the chat. We got Mr. Fab and Imaginos. Howdy, howdy. Uh, and then I think the Ramen City Kid is also lurking around. Uh, uh, a little bit worried about the Groundhogs uh, guitarist who has just passed, apparently. Cat in the chat, I think, is also around. We were both uh, kind of uh, uh, lamenting in the chat here that... Uh, some of the jokes uh, presented in tonight's uh, show uh, might be uh, uh, generation-specific, or, or uh, at least uh, you have to be uh, this uh, old to uh, appreciate these uh, references. So uh, hopefully uh, we're not uh, sounding too exclusive, and, and if there's anything uh, you're curious about... Uh, by all means, uh, we'll happily explain. We're 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 not uh, trying to be gatekeepers here. We we want to share. We promise. I think I mentioned this before, and I have been uh, saying it in the chat. But uh, all of the musical selections tonight are ones uh, uh, picked by Steve himself. We've been trading a lot of emails back and forth, talking about music, talking about stuff that he. Uh, grew up on that was interested in that uh, were some of his favorites uh, that kind of thing uh, and so uh, I have uh, peppered throughout these conversations uh, musical selections that he uh, uh, encouraged uh, but I want to give special attention to the Bob Care Whoopi Band uh, which is a, actually a spinoff from the Bonzo uh, Dog Doodah Band Bob Care was in the Bonzos and then went to form his own kind of uh, maniac uh, group uh, that was very inspired by Spike Jones, but uh, Bob Kerr was kind of doing this in the, the late 60s and 70s. Uh, and so uh, Bob Kerr went on to play for many years in uh, a lot of different kinds of variety bands, and uh, their kind of gag was that it was like half comedy between the songs. So there was like a, usually some sort of comedy um, prop 
component to the setup, and then they would play the song, and then another kind of comedic, uh, either kind of just uh, one-liners or, or whatever. Um, there, there's a lot of videos online that you can kind of check out. Uh, it, it, fascinating group, kind of a, almost a, a trying to bring back vaudeville at a time when uh, that was really big in the UK, but it was not really... Um, lasting very long. You, you can kind of hear that reflection in a little bit of the Beatles catalog where they're doing all that kind of retro vaudeville stuff, but uh, it was more of a flash in the, in the pan and kind of moved on to other things. But I, I think Bob Kerr might even still be alive and might even still do occasional shows, but that was uh, based on re re uh, research I did a little bit ago, so <laughs> you never you never can tell. Uh, he, he's, he's not a young man. Anywho, uh, always a pleasure. Uh, Steve is one of those people who uh, returns my email quickly and, and is uh, always very keen to talk about all sorts of stuff. And uh, it just so happens he also wrote one of my favorite TV shows. So, yeah, let's get into hour two uh, here. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us and, and sticking around. And, uh, yeah. Hopefully, uh, this is something that you can sink your teeth into. Uh, the Steve Roberts interview. Brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. One could easily forgive Steve if he were to have quit show business entirely and returned to a simpler life as a landlord or something. He put in 10 years at the BBC worked with both the Beatles and the Bonzos, directed one of the first six-part documentaries on the environment, and broke every broadcasting rule he could think of, and a few he invented along the way, just because he could, really. There would be no shame in clocking out, putting away the cameras and the scripts, and spending all of your time on the boat, reading books, dreaming of other possibilities. I mean... It was the 80s already. You might have come up in an era of optimism and possibility, but things weren't really getting any better, and cynicism was building everywhere around you. As the world began to enter a more dangerous political realm, motivated by corporations, greed, advertising dollars, and big TV ratings, it seemed that the long-haired attitude that had gotten him through the 70s had placed him in the plastic-covered, LED-blinking future, and that optimistic, carry-on spirit wasn't enough to help steer our culture away from the oblivion it was clearly running toward. At a time when our daily interactions with new, glitching technology were almost as comical as the actors they were electing to run the United States, it seemed as if the chance to make a big, bold statement about now was quickly disappearing in this particular future. Resources were being squirreled away, and access to being part of the broadcasting fraternity was being closed off to anyone who wouldn't play the corporate game. When the idealism of the past comes up against the technology and the bleakness of 80s conservatism, it's no wonder that everyone felt like they were victims of this new, horrific, screen-covered future rather than soothed by its shiny, polished, neon utopia. As we all learned, it was the world of science fiction, 
publishing astonishing critiques of modern culture, and not necessarily documentaries or ambitious TV producers that were truly making bold statements at that time. Comments on the futility of nuclear war and the oncoming diseases that were being anticipated by HIV and belligerent cancers that seemed to be the subject of every other news story that wasn't about a war in some far-off part of the world, all subjects that were off-limits for critique, except in the reality of science fiction. News. That idea that we could stay current on all events happening thousands of miles away from us was not just a national, but a global obsession in the early 80s. And in a pre-cable news universe, one could see, just around the corner, a bleaker version of news as entertainment, too, that was already seeping into our minds 40-plus years ago. All of this, and more certainly, was being stirred up by the books and movies that Steve was reading and watching, creating the perfect scenario for an unexpected new phase of his life just about to begin. I'm curious what made you attractive to the team that was making Max Headroom? Like, uh, was it just your reputation or was there something specific that they were like, oh, hey, we want to get this guy on? Well, the, the, the truth about that is that the team, so-called, that was putting Max Headroom together, uh, was in chaos. There was this idea, this concept that was supposed to service uh, a video clip show popular music video show. And Channel 4 had been looking for a very long time to find a way to do this. And somebody came up with the idea, well, let's make it into a robot. And from the robot uh, had come the idea that this could actually be a living person downloaded into a computer. And that is about as far as it had got. And the producer, Peter, Peter Wang, was getting very desperate and he said to my agent, uh, you know, who have you got that will understand this stuff? And she thought it would be me. Beginning in advertising and music videos, Peter Wagg was the head of creative services at Chrysalis Records and was responsible for distributing and promoting videos by Blondie, Pat Benatar, Huey Lewis, Billy Idol, Ultravox, Spandu Ballet, and Jethro Tull, among many others. As the story goes, Peter had been looking for a new kind of video presenter who could be packaged with music videos and was approached by Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel with a rough idea they developed with their friend George Stone. We'll get back to the story of Max Hedrum in a moment. But afterwards, Peter worked in Hollywood throughout the 90s, then moved on to producing Cirque du Soleil films and a Celine Dion stage show. Peter is still working, still producing, and still coming up with new ideas nearly 40 years later. And they had two versions of a screenplay, and I read it and really, really didn't like it. It was like a very kind of schoolboy version of robots running around shooting at things. It was just awful. And I said so, and he said, yeah, I know, that's the trouble, and none of us like it, and what the hell can we do with it? And I said, I've got no idea, we better meet. So we did. And we met in a pub. I, in those days, tended to wear 
scruffy clothes, well, I still do, I suppose, uh, and uh, and long hair and ponytails, and he was in a suit. So we just didn't get on. I mean, instantly, it was obvious that we were, uh, you know, uh, both from different teams. But we had a beer, talked about the idea, and I found the idea then electrifying, the idea that in some way or other that there would be an accident and somebody's brain would get into a computer and what could you do with that and so we just started riffing literally in the pub on what we might do so the next day i met with the two directors which was its own interesting world um and they said well we still don't know what to do and we all went to find the answer from a man called colin wilson born in 1931 Colin Wilson was a writer and novelist, with almost 100 books to his name, largely in the true crime, mysticism, and paranormal genres. Wilson subscribed to a philosophy called New Existentialism, which tried to put a new optimistic spin on existential thought. Part of the Angry Young Men literary movement, his first book, The Outsider, was a huge hit and led to a career writing nonfiction and some fiction novels on the side, too. Largely detective, but some in the weird fiction and science fiction genres as well. One of his novels, The Space Vampires, was used as the inspiration for the film Life Force, which Colin quipped was now the worst film adaptation of a novel ever, beating out John Fowle's book, The Magus, which had been previously adapted into a terrible film. Forever honing his thoughts on the paranormal, he finally decided to investigate the matter firsthand and departed from this world on the 5th of December, 2013. And he'd been doing some work on, on um, uh, dual minds and the capacity for people to have left and right brain thinking. He'd written an article in one of the Sunday newspapers. We went to uh, the southwest of England stayed at Faulty Towers. It should have been Faulty Towers. It was, it was the most aggressive human that ever ran a hotel. Wouldn't let us make phone calls unless we paid for them in advance. I mean, it was a bizarre setup. But we met with Colin Wilson, and Colin was wonderful. And he began to give us a sense of how we could make a mind like that work. And his son, who was about 10, I think, uh, suggested that we make the lead scientist 12 or 14 years old. So all of the Max Headroom that we ended up with came from all sorts of different inputs. There was no body who created Max. It evolved as we went. And so we spent a week down there. We, we I, Every morning we'd spend chewing over ideas frantically. I would take notes, try and put the notes into some sort of coherent shape in the afternoon. And then we'd go ahead again the next day, and that's how it all came together. And when we got back to London, basically, they said, well, look, there's a pile of notes and a pile of ideas. Can you do something with it? And I vanished for 20 days and, and, and wrote what became Max Hedrick. Simple as that. Seems pretty straightforward. And so the directors, the two directors, um, you know, said, well, we want to see something. Well, any writer knows that the first three or four pages of what you write end up being the final pages that you always change to account for what you wrote later. But I was told I had to send the pages in. And I said, well, Christ, you know, this is just a rough first draft. Send the pages in. So I, in those days, faxed in the pages. 
And their response was, oh, this is great. This is just what we're looking for. So that gave me the confidence to go ahead and go right tail with it. I'll just write this the way I think it should be. And we'll see what changes later. And the uh, simple answer to that was nothing changed because it was shot as written. There were no notes ever given. First time in my life I've ever experienced it. They just took it and went and started shooting it. Mine, they didn't have much time. I think they got the money together in no time and uh, had to go and do it. And Rocky and Annabelle, who directed it, were brilliant visualists. That was their terrific power. They knew how to create imagery in the sort of way that Ridley Scott became famous for doing, you know. They, they had that tremendous uh, capacity. And uh, I think that's what helped to get Max really uh, so impactively on the screen. Both Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel were born in 1955 and began working in the late 70s, producing TV commercials and music videos and any other kind of video sequences by combining a number of different techniques including the mixing of live action, animation, and Emmy award-winning visual graphics that had the appearance of computer-generated images. As a team, they went on to make groundbreaking music videos for Rush, Elvis Costello, The Talking Heads, and Miles Davis, among many others. In preparing these various video techniques, they accumulated enough research to publish a book, Creative Computer Graphics, in 1984 which offered a detailed history of the medium with a few essays about the future of computer graphics and film. And now, nearly all of our players have finally been assembled. You had a huge period of creative work where you not only were like producing all these scripts and producing the show, but uh, you changed locations, you moved to another country. I, I can only imagine that this left a bigger impact on you, not just creatively, but like in your life. Did you have some time to readjust to the world of the United States? Um, well, yes, uh, that readjustment took some doing, uh, but it, I mean, it took three days. Basically, um, I came over originally because um, I was telephoned by the producer, Peter Wagg, who had previously come over to the States, got a deal together with um, Coke, Coca-Cola, and uh, with Lorimar, the production company, and put all this together, and they'd done what they always do, rewritten it, and as usual, screwed it up. So now they were in a panic because they, they the, the original script which was basically the same as the one that had been shot in the UK, but had brought over none of the people who shot it because there'd been a big legal kerfuffle of which, frankly, I knew nothing and still don't know much. But there was much, you know, howling and screaming about creative rights and and who owned what and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, and these things always devolve into that sort of chaos if you're not very careful. So uh, he just said, will you come across and put it back the way it was, please? It'll take you two or three days and they want different act breaks in it and, and that was it. So that's all I did. I literally arrived with, with a, a, a tiny bag with some toothpaste and underwear in it and was staying for three or four days. That's when they said... Um, if you were to do another one and make this a series, you know, what would it look like? 
And of course we were floored because we'd never considered this as an idea at all. And we sat down again in a pub and went, what the hell are we going to do? So we came up with an idea and I sat down and wrote this thing. It took three days, literally, just day and night with bottles of wine and sandwiches and just go, 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 go. He took it to this meeting and they ordered uh, a series 13 off the top. And he called me and said, they've just ordered 13, you can't go back to England anymore. And I said, well, what the hell happened? He said, well, it was a bit amazing, really. Um, he said, when they asked us you know, to provide something which would show what we'd do if we did a, a, another one and further ones down the series, they expected one page, three paragraphs, acts one, two, and three would look something like this. And instead, I handed them a 52-day... <laughs> a 52-page script that we'd knocked off in three days, and they just said, that's it, we'll do it. <laughs> so we'd done quite the wrong thing. They only wanted one page. Wow. Well, the point is, that was happening because none of the original production entities had come across, me included. I wasn't originally invited to come any more than Rocky and Annabelle and all the other uh, people who were involved. Only Matt Frewer, the actor, um, was... Um, was brought over. They must be talking about that corporate stooge from the Crimson Permanent Assurance. Eric, the balance sheets. Ross, get the readouts. Once there, and once that had happened, I was kind of stuck with it. And as soon as we went into production, I had no intention of staying, to be frank. I was very happy doing what I was doing in England. But went into production, and one day, through the internal Lorimar Mail, I received uh, a little cheque. And I went into the next office, much grander than mine, because it was the producers, of course, palm trees and secretaries and all that stuff. And I said to Peter Wagg, I said, I don't get this. I, I didn't even read the contracts that you told me to sign. You said they were all right, so I just trusted you. I said, but why are they paying us for a whole year in one cheque? I don't get it. And he looked at me, he said, you silly bugger, that's this week. <laughs> so I stayed. That's, that's how it happened. And uh, as you uh, implied, yes, a bit of a life changer. Because in the UK, you don't, or didn't then anyway, work for the money. You work because you love doing it, and it was a great way to earn a fairly decent living, but that was about it. And all of a sudden, you come to America and discover people actually pay you to do things. And uh, this was very seriously life-changing. And, uh, I, you know, I couldn't get over the fact that in California, they polished trucks. That was the biggest astonishment for me. You will ride eternal, shiny and chrome. It seems like you worked pretty closely with Michael Cassett uh, after the project kind of got up off the ground and running. Uh, what was that working relationship like? I still, I still see Mike. Uh, uh, he, um, we've remained in touch over all these years. Um, the problem with Max was it was a very English concept, which is to say that it was mm. deeply cynical, mm. um, uh, self-effacing in many ways, uh, but and it had a kind of a, a, a very dark sense of humour, but also it let go of almost every convention you, you could ever think of. Well, American television was not then like that. Uh, it was very, very 
It would have been an impossible sell had we not already made it in England. And Stu Bloomberg, who was head of development for ABC, had seen it and loved it. You wouldn't have sold it off the paper, I don't think. Well, the consequence of that was that when it came to find writers, because I couldn't write 13, um, you know, I did the first and the last or something, and we had to fill in the middle, obviously. Um, Writers who had that same sensibility were very, very hard to find. In fact, almost impossible. And I interviewed dozens of them and, and came away all the time going, God, is there nobody who can see the fun in this and, the, you know, see the wit in it? They were also desperately bloody serious about it all. And it was Mike Cassett who was the first guy who walked into the room and said something or other, and I thought, maybe this bloke has got a grip, you know, on what we can do with it. And we started to talk, and I suddenly realised, this is it, Mike's the man. Welcome to the team. Mike was the only fella, really, who got it, to be honest, and and he got it totally, and and wrote some of the very, very best stuff, I think. Um, So I still see Mike. You know, he writes books and science fiction books and all the rest of it, uh, you know, by the dozen. They seem to pour out of him. So he had all the right uh, uh, entry points for Max, uh, unlike anybody else that I ever found, actually. Even the casual student of Max Hedrum will probably notice the influences of Philip K. Dick and William Gibson on the stories and subject matter of the show. And both Michael and Steve are very open about this. He was so far ahead of us, uh, you know, in in orbit. Gibson was remarkable. Uh, but there was a funny story about uh, about him. Was we were both on a panel at some science fiction do in uh, San Francisco, I think it was. Uh, and two things astonished me. The first was that walking around in this conference, I met five people with my name on their badges. I mean, it stunned me completely. I have no idea what, that people did this sort of thing, but they were all saying to me. And so I engaged one in conversation. I had the most wonderful conversation about how Max Headroom started with somebody who'd never been that. I mean, it was a sort of insane world. I know it's not healthy, I know it's not true. I don't even know who I'm talking to. The second thing was that when we were on the panel, somebody, somebody said, um, asked us through the moderator, you know, how come you guys know so much about computing you're so far ahead of the world of computing how do you know and I immediately shuffled this off onto William Gibson because you know he knew stuff and um, he immediately shuffled it back to me and so I was very embarrassed I had to confess that I had written Max Hydrogen on a $30 portable typewriter um, uh, in England uh, because I didn't know how to turn a computer on and I didn't and it took me a lot of time to work out how to do that even more confusing for me was how to turn it off because I could never find the off button until some sweet lady uh, in, in LA said you press start that's when I realised that my relationship with computers was never going to work because to press start to stop it lost me completely. Don't, don't, don't start. I've got a weak heart and I don't get around how you get around. What was interesting was William Gibson then confessed 
he said, well, I'm afraid I'm in much the same situation. I wrote Neuromancer on an old office typewriter. He couldn't turn one on either. You know the old saying, birds of a feather. The reason that in my case, certainly, um, I knew so much about computers is because I knew nothing about them and therefore was completely unfettered in what I could imagine that they could do. So even, I mean, even now I'm deep into the whole artificial intelligence thing and I'm in the middle of a whole book about it, uh, writing a book about it, or at least which involves it, which kind of takes Max on uh, as a concept way, way beyond where we ever allowed to, to get him. Uh, but I still know nothing about computers. I, 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 every time I go near one, it gives up automatically. That goes for telephone, anything at all. I think the buggers know what I know, and they try to stop. In many ways, producing new episodes of Max Headroom had a lot of things in common with some of the previous work experiences that Steve had already been through. It was a task. It was a very serious task. I mean, I don't think anyone took a day off for two years. Um, you know, that included Christmas and every Sunday, you, you, you just had to keep on working. And, and that's part of that game. It's why it's so uh, entertaining to be in entertainment because your commitment to something is so absolute. Your enthusiasm is total. You know, your personal life just falls apart because you have to pull this thing off and make it happen. So no, there wasn't much, much else other than keep writing and keep thinking and Far too much drinking, probably.
the Steve Roberts interview. Mutations. With musical selections made by Mr. Roberts himself. Well, this seems like a good time to talk about executives. One thing that's like an element to the show are those boardroom scenes. And there is a sweaty, manipulative eeriness to watching the executives talk to each other over ratings and, you know, what were we going to do next and whatnot. I mean, like, the joke in the show is that they want to execute audiences rather than, you know, do their work. Did, did, was there a particular axe you were grinding, or were you just very prescient about how those rooms work? <laughs> I, I don't know that uh, an axe was being ground, but um, I worked at the BBC also, you know, for 10 years, uh, producing and directing for them. And, um, you, you know, the, the suits were always a bit of a problem. <laughs> Exactly how much of a problem wasn't fully clear yet. And unfortunately, Steve's thrill ride working on Max was about to come to an end. We get into the story in detail in our panel discussion episode featuring Steve, Michael Cassett, and Brian Frankish, and I do recommend you hear the entire tale straight from the horses' mouths. But for those who are looking for a Reader's Digest version, after a successful run of six episodes, ABC renewed Max for a full second season, not fully aware of exactly how much money had been spent to make those episodes. But as the numbers began to come in, it was clear the show was not really profitable if current spending trends continued. And there were other factors that were putting pressure on the network, too. The aforementioned legal troubles that Steve brought up seemed to surround the character everywhere it went, which could easily be cleared up with the kind of money that Coca-Cola had, but were continuing to worsen as more and more people began to claim ownership of the character. In addition to that problem, so long as Coke used Max as their product salesman, ABC got free advertising for their program on other networks when it ran a Coke commercial, which certainly must have enraged a number of executives throughout entertainment. Suddenly, steps were being taken against season two, almost as if it were being set up for failure. The show was moved to Friday nights, the historic death slot, and costs were dramatically cut, in theory, in an effort to rein in the out-of-control budget of a show that was pretty controversial to begin with. Like the character himself, the show Max Headroom was doing everything in its power to continue, and at the production values needed to look like, well, itself. Even if this required somewhat sneaky tactics. Finally, as if someone with a lot of pull looked at the episodes and was horrified by what they found, the network saw no other choice but to kill the project entirely, cut everyone loose, and burn off the remaining completed episodes 
on a few random Thursdays, several months later. The U.S. show was completely buried, almost an embarrassment of broadcasting, from a naive moment in U.S. television history when the lowest-rated network thought it could take a chance on edgy sci-fi and not get burned by the anti-television sentiment at the core of the show's concept. Left with the choice to stay and try to find work elsewhere, or return to the UK and rebuild his life there, Steve took another gamble and stayed in the United States. I know that you worked for Disney for quite a while after Max Headroom, uh, doing different scripts for different shows and whatnot. Uh, how did that come about? Oh, the, the, yeah. Um, was it Disney? There were a lot of others. There, there's a, a whole list of, of studios, um, which, uh, you know, Lorimar and New Line and Sony. And uh, I've got a list of them somewhere here. Renaissance, Fireworks, Warner Brothers, Nelvana, Carol Co. Look, uh, you know, mm-hmm. well, the reason that happens is because once you got started, a sudden switch in your life occurs. First, these checks start appearing, which, of course, is an eye-opener. And secondly, something happens that never happened before. You get an agent. And the reason you get an agent is because they know those checks are there. And so all of a sudden, everybody who was previously slamming the door in your face and saying, well, who the hell do you think you are? And what can I do for you? Is screaming, can we work for you, please, and get our 10%? So that's what changes. And the reason that you start to work for all these other people is because you've got an agent out there going, hire him, hire him, I want my money. And that's what happens. And you get passed around. And I ended up doing things like Hercules, the Hercules series, and Queen of Swords, and um, uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of stuff like that. You know? And it's basically because your agent is placing you. And um, it's as simple as that. And you end up writing dozens and dozens and dozens of things that nobody would have hired you with had the agent not gone in and sold you. And then movies, the same, you know, exactly the same. I wrote a movie for New Line. Actually, I wrote the same movie twice for New Line, for uh, uh, about Tom Brown, the tracker, stuff like that. And, you know, and that's where the mad things start to happen. Um, I'd sold, pitched to two networks, um, the story of Tom Brown, the tracker, if you're aware of it. I won't waste your time with it now, but it's fascinating. From New Jersey... Tom Brown the Tracker was born in 1950 and has written a series of 18 books between the years of 1978 and 2019. He also wrote a series of articles for Mother Earth News between 1981 and 1985 and was the subject of a CBS News report in 2005 and 2006. Later, he opened the Tom Brown Jr. Tracker School, using his version of Indian ceremonies as part of the training. Some of Brown's claims have been unsubstantiated, and his first big case led to a lawsuit after he found the wrong person. But he began to develop a name for himself, and to this day has a reputation as someone who tracks people who have gone lost, dangerous animals, and fugitives from the law. We'd sold it in one morning to two networks. Pitch must have been very good, is all I can assume. And they were then fighting each other to get the show. And 
At the same time, New Line Cinema wanted to do a movie, and I can't quite remember how this all got put together, but they saw some of the writing for it and wanted to do it. So they had me write a motion picture of the same subject as well. Well, William Friedkin, who I'm sure you've heard of, Hurricane Billy. William Friedkin's notorious difficulty as a person to work with is almost as legendary as his filmography having directed The French Connection, The Boys in the Band, Sorcerer, Cruising, and To Live and Die in L.A. Hurricane Billy came on to direct it, you know, and we all think, well, Christ, yeah, that's nice because we've got a top director. And the first words out of his mouth to me were, this stinks, you haven't got a clue what you're doing. Uh, which was not a great thing to hear from a director on the f- at the first meeting. And my agent, who was sitting there, turned a very strange white colour because, faced with this uh, turbulent little man, I said, oh, good morning, my name's Steve, who the hell are you? And that really got us into it. And uh, so, uh, you know, storming out, I think is the word. Um, and I got a call from uh, him that night saying, look... I'm going to show you what this needs. I'm going to send you over some stuff, show you the sort of thing I need, and see if you can rewrite the opening 10 or 12 pages like it should be done. Well, you know, I was getting paid to do it, and so you just say, yes, sir, fine, send it over. And I received by car in my little uh, beachside hut in Malibu where I was living very happily at the time, uh, some handwritten pages. And uh, so I looked at these and I thought, I don't know what hell this is, but it's not the movie, it's awful. And then I found a note at the end saying, you know, from from Bill, this is, this is how it should be done, do it like this. And I thought, what the hell do I do? Because I like my version. Uh, here's me saying to another, and I just didn't... So in the end, I did the only thing I could do. So I worked away for a few hours and called the car, which arrived in the middle of the night, because that's how they do things. Bullock takes my type things and returns them. And the following morning, I get an irate telephone call from William Friedkin saying, you know, I'm going to have to fire you because this is a disaster. This is the biggest load of crap I've ever seen. And I said, I know. You wrote it. All I did was retype it and send it back. Oh. That's embarrassing. And well, the great the great thing about all that sort of thing is, you see, was that I had been fired off the spot, no trouble at all. He was fired off the film a, a month later or something, and my agent came back to me and said, "Well, uh, they've asked me to come back to you. Would you mind going and rewriting it again?" And I said, "Oh, for crying out loud, not again!" He said, "They'll pay you again." I went, "All right, fine, through it." So now I'd written one script and got paid twice for it. One for tomorrow. One just for today. I tell you, Hollywood is a weird place. Don't go near it. I mean, this is kind of the the, the, the lesson of the Max Hedrum program is it's like anti-television, anti-corporate. It's it's kind of it's kind of revealing exactly what you're talking about is that like once you get into the belly of the beast, they really kind of try to bat you around like a cat with a mouse. In a way, you won, though. Like, the show made that point and survived, and people have gotten that message. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, you see, this is why I said right at the beginning, it was so difficult to find writers, 
to do, Max, because they didn't have what I'm going to call the British sensibility uh, towards uh, the corporate world. And I suppose by that I mean a sense of humour. You will find Martin Newell has exactly the same sort of approach to the world because those of us growing up at that time, that era, were very anti the organisation. We could see what a load of wankers they were. We knew that they were uh, taking terrible advantage of us. Uh, socialism in England, by the way, is not uh, a dirty word. There's a government there which is a socialist government. You can have one. It's okay. They don't have horns and eat babies. It, it's, it's just... Uh, it was a very different approach to the understanding of what the world was about. I was stunned when I came over for the first time and found people calling me sir. I couldn't bear it. It was terrifying to me. Just because you were the writer on a show, people started saying, sir. And I used to say, for God's sake, please just call me George or anything, but not that. It was, it was that attitude, <laughs> you see that fed our feeling about executives, networks, and all the rest of it. It was the same attitude that found it difficult to find American writers because it's changed now, thank heavens, but oh, perhaps not heavens, hell. But the, 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 it, it, there was this um, feeling that you didn't make enemies, you didn't argue, because, you know, you've got to be careful who you meet on the way up, and how you treat them because of who you're going to meet on the way down and how you're going to be treated by them and so on. So there was a fear base to this culture. And in countless movies that we've all seen, this fear base, this aggression um, and so on, has come out, well, now it's sort of being dealt with. The girls got back and started fighting, and now we've got the racial issues at last. Everyone's getting stuck into those, and people are beginning to call it as it is. And, uh, you know, I think that's the attitude we brought with us from England. Uh, I don't mean that started. I, I mean, that's what we happen to have, which is why Max was so full of that kind of cynical view of people in suits. And, and I still have that cynical view, to be very frank. Yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've now met even more of them that convinced me I was right. And this, of course, is the problem when we get a chance to talk to Steve. We are both in awe of his stories, and he loves to tell them. So the part of me that has spent most of my life pondering the tales he wrote for Max Hedrum could hear him talk about the minutiae of the program until the network cancels us. Somehow. But suffice it to say, we had to draw a line in the sand somewhere, eventually. Sooner or later, Heather will need to get back to her cat, Steve will want another old speckled hen, and I should probably get back to editing these conversations. It's time to hang up the phone, go our separate ways, and, of course get back to work. Certainly, there were, and are, more surprises left to uncover if we continue to tap into the renewable resource that is Steve Roberts. Someone like him is as much a bard as he is a writer, who has had the chance to see many things, participate in many unusual events, talk with some of the most curious media figures of the past. And he still keeps going, from place to place, job to job, accumulating new tales to add to the pile, 
and offering him new audiences to try and entertain. Networks can cancel him. Directors can fire him. Or Steve can just up and quit himself. But sooner or later, another story needs to be written. And another script gets sold. Another percentage is taken out for those accountants who are oh so very worried about our careers. And the world of entertainment keeps slowly moving forward. I was both floored and humbled by how down-to-earth Steve was. For someone who I had built up and admired from my perspective as a fan, he could have turned out to be almost any kind of Hollywood personality, and I probably would have found something in him to admire, even if there wasn't very much. But the fact that this entertainment rebel just so happened to be the right kind of person to admire certainly was icing on the cake for me. In the days before punk rock was even an idea, he was more punk than all of us. In the days when TV was so much more milquetoast, he set a standard that we're only now catching up with. Shows like Black Mirror and Altered Carbon can trace their lineage back to the early cyberpunk trappings that Steve Roberts cooked up in a script that he managed to write in 20 days one fall in the early 80s, comically riffing on both 1984 the book and Blade Runner the film. But it's not the similarities to other fiction that makes Steve's work interesting. It's taking in his entire body of work and realizing that he has always been the rock and roll oddball, worried about the environment, and ready to take on any subject as something that he could use for social critique. There is a part of me that wants to attribute too much meaning to the fact that the environment is destroyed in the world of Max Hedrum, and that Steve himself has been thinking about, and has been concerned with, the environment for decades. The fact that some of his early broadcasts on Late Night Lineup toyed with the news format to better deliver a punch also seems far too relevant when you consider how important that conceit is to the format of Max Headroom. But having spent a lot of time with Steve on phone calls and having traded a lot of email with him, I can absolutely be certain that while these thoughts might have been subconsciously informing his writing, his only conscious thought while hammering out pages is, I need to hit this deadline. Keep moving forward. Keep pressing on. Just keep writing. There's a working class ethic and sensibility in nearly everything Steve produces, and it's the fact that he sides with us, and he writes from our point of view, and that he is willing to find the fun in creating these kinds of stories that really makes Steve's work, and Max Hedrum, some of the most compelling entertainment that you can find. Especially if you happen to have a pint or two while you're watching. That's how Steve usually does it. delight to be given the right to be carefree and gay once again no longer slinking respectably drinking like civilized ladies and men no longer need we miss a 
charming scene like this In some secluded rendezvous That overlooks the avenue With someone sharing a delight To chat of this and that with cocktails for two As we enjoy a cigarette <coughs> Some exquisite chardonnay Two hands are sure to slightly meet Beneath the serviette with cocktails for two my head may go dreamy, but my heart will be obedient With intoxicating kisses for the principal ingredient Most any afternoon at five, we'll be so glad we're both alive But maybe fortune will complete the plan that all began with cocktails for two Any afternoon at five We'll be so glad we're both alive Well and maybe fortune will complete the plan That all began with cocktails Four, two, 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 Mid Valley The Steve Roberts Interview with musical selections made by Mr. Roberts himself.
I got a little more uh, after this, but for the most part, we've 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 hit the end of the interview. And and and, and thank you for all of the kind words, uh, everyone. I this one's a little bit personal because uh, certainly I've uh, been very excited to have uh, been able to get to know Steve and to find out all these kind of little secrets and whatnot about a show that I assumed uh, we're going to have much different answers. <laughs> uh, Steve is both. Uh, older and younger than I imagined he was and uh, uh, for that he's uh, he's a, a kick in the pants and I, I do appreciate uh, uh, his tales of, of Hollywood and and other kinds of uh, entertainment adventure thank you so much for sticking around to the very end here H uh, Imaginos uh, uh, and of course uh, let's see um, Mr. X Cat uh, in the chat uh, uh, probably some lurkers as well uh, but yeah uh, it seems like we had a pretty good crowd uh, and uh, yeah it, it was certainly one of those things that I appreciate more and more is uh, uh, getting to hang out on a Monday and a Tuesday and just you know uh, listen to some weird strange radio whatever that might be Thanks again, Sheena's, for uh, everything that you uh, do for us. And, uh, yeah, you know, <clears throat> as I have mentioned a few times in the chat and, and whatnot, all the music tonight was picked up by Steve. He uh, uh, mentioned quite a bit in our conversations that uh, he was an ACDC and a status quo fan. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, it made a, made a lot of uh, uh, hay about um, them being close to his heart. And so, you know, uh, who knows if, if, if uh, Steve is listening. I know technology usually challenges uh, him in some way or another, and so he might not be able to, to hear these words. But if so, uh, just know that uh, we're going to close with a little ACDC here, and uh, thanks for everything you've done. And uh, what can I say? You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no show. Be seeing you. How does this darn thing work?
tell your dog we uh, said hello. Yes, absolutely. Come here, Jack. They said hello. Come here. Come on. <laughs> Come on. There's a good dog. Uh, There's Jack. Look. Come here. There. Oh, there's Jack. That's Jack Sparrow, isn't it? Yes. Good boy. Reg's dog is one of our favorite characters on the show, too. So. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, what okay. a good boy. Bye for now. Oh, my goodness. Red Valley Mutations.